This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much indeed for tuning in. And here we are still in the summer recess. I'm in Edinburgh about halfway through the run of shows. And it's been very interesting. The audiences have been fantastic and engaged. And uh, already halfway, it's a different show every day. So it's like a sort of box set over 14 episodes. And at sort of half time, uh, we are already kind of delving deep. The audiences make a prediction each day. And it's interesting, the contrast with last summer, just give one example, a year ago, when I asked the audience to predict whether they thought Keir Starmer would be prime minister after the general election. Um, certainly on one show, a majority predicted that he would not be. Uh, this year, a majority a huge majority predicted he would be, although there was quite a lot of disagreement as to whether it would be leading an overall majority or in a hung parliament. But I think on one day in a, a, a big, big uh, audience, only two predicted he would not be. Um, and so, yeah, we've explored a lot. Of course, here we are in Scotland with a massive by-election coming up in uh, Rather Glen, and uh, the audience predicted on one day that Labour would gain that seat, but by no means all. It was about two thirds, one third. I think it's going to be one of the biggest by elections in recent decades, that one currently held by the SNP, but Labour ache to gain it. Um, so, yeah, just there's just a couple of examples. Oh, yeah, we did the media one day, the relationship between media and politicians, and I asked the audience to predict whether they thought the Sun would endorse the Conservatives uh, at the general election. And to my surprise, quite a big majority predicted that the Sun would not endorse the Conservatives at the next election. I wonder about that. Not wholly, I, they won't have made up their minds, but they are far more inclined to be soft on the Tories and hostile to Labour than they were in the build-up to 1997. So, you know, those are just kind of a few of the predictions and some of the themes. We've done politics and climate change. That was one I did today before rushing back to record this uh, podcast. Um, what did we do yesterday? Oh, yeah, we explored various phrases, you know, which we do sometimes in the podcast, including phrases like take back control, you know. God, you could do a book on that phrase. Um, so it's been very interesting. So we're halfway through. Uh, if you're in uh, or near or can get to Edinburgh, do come along. Um, there are many more to come in the next few days. And then after that, thank you, people who've travelled a long way to get to these shows. And it's great seeing people who listen to the podcast. Um, uh, yeah, yesterday I bumped into you. You all know the name Stephen Townsley, who came up. He came up from uh, near Newcastle to the show. And it made me think, you know, those of you who live within kind of, uh, you know, 
hours of King's Place. You must come. It's compulsory. If Stephen can get up from Newcastle, yeah, those of you kind of in surrounding cities, you got to get down to King's Place for September the 13th when it will be the start of the new political year. Party conferences looming, almost certainly the pre-election party conferences. Reshuffles done, uh, symbolising what, if anything. Um, but those party conferences, I think, will be significant, as will the stance of the various parties when they all get back uh, early next week. So, yeah, tickets for the remaining Edinburgh shows uh, carry on until Saturday, available in the blurb for this podcast or on the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and similarly for King's Place on September the 13th and also on the King's Place website. See you at one of these uh, live shows where we'll be delving deep together. Um, uh, Today, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to pluck out another uh, special from the Patreon vault. Hopefully, those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon to make all this possible, um, you'll have got your bonus podcast for August, which was the first of the live shows in uh, Edinburgh. Um, And uh, meanwhile, uh, we're all plucking at the vault. Uh, Last uh, week, we... um, explored uh, one of the troublemakers in the series of troublemakers, Enoch Powell. And today I thought I would pluck out from the series about the relationship between prime ministers and their chosen special advisors. Always a fascinating and deep uh, theme and an important one. Prime ministers need close confidence and who they choose tells us more about a prime minister than just about anything else, because it's in their freedom to choose those they take into number 10 with them. Um, Cabinets, and they are not wholly free to choose. They're not even uh, often in a position where they are free to choose the Chancellor of the Exchequer of their choice, Um, but they are free to choose their own advisers. And in the series on Patreon, uh, we looked at a whole range of these relationships, Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams, um, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. And all of them are important. Even people like Theresa May, who are quite shy and awkward, had within her number 10 close allies or friends who she could trust and who she knew for a long time time. I think Keir Starmer, who is relatively new to politics, being a former director of public prosecutions, is both a massive advantage in that he has run a big public department, but it also means he's relatively new to politics and didn't have the time to build up relationships like Blair did with Alistair Campbell. Uh, Marcia Williams worked for Harold Wilson from the 50s, uh, years before he became leader of the opposition, and so on. And they matter. And although I think, for example, now Sunak is in a, a weak position and is struggling to adjust to the demands of leadership, unsurprisingly in some respects, because he's relatively new to politics at the very top. But he has an advantage in that in number 10, he has got people who he knows and trusts, most fundamentally James Forsyth, who was, uh, Rishi Sunak was James Forsyth's best man at James Forsyth's wedding. 
Uh, they've known each other since school days. And it is fantastically useful for a prime minister to have such a person. And of course, as I say, it will tell us much about Sunak that he turned to someone like James Forsyth um, to help him navigate the hell of leadership at the very top. And I think Keir Starmer would benefit from having an equivalent of all these people, an equivalent of Marcia, an equivalent of James. Um, and I don't quite see it. Uh, Sue Gray's about to start. And I think she will in some ways be incredibly significant in terms of her impact, um, but not quite the same. Uh, they're not sort of old friends and they know each other, of course, uh, but they are not bonded in quite the same way as some of these others. Now, two of those who were bonded uh, <laughs> were David Cameron and Steve Hilton. And of the series of um, these special relationships, this is the one I've chosen because one of the lessons I've learned at Edinburgh is the growing recognition that the origins of virtually everything whirling around British politics at the moment began with uh, the David Cameron era. And that era can be explained by his choice of those he brought into number 10, and indeed uh, for when he was leader. And of course, he brought in Steve Hilton. And so uh, I think in order to cast light on now, that's the one I've chosen. So here we are, the relationship between a prime minister and their chosen confidants, David Cameron, and Steve Hilton. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The relationship between David Cameron and his chosen special advisor, Steve Hilton, tells us so much about the Cameron era, a period which has become rather ghostly given the dramas that followed with Theresa May and Boris Johnson. But we need to revisit it and make sense of it because all the seeds were sown for what we are living through now. And the relationship between Cameron and Hilton tells us a lot about how the media sees politics and how Cameron managed to convey a sense that he was a change maker when he wasn't. I'm going to talk more in this podcast about my impressions of Steve Hilton and David Cameron because certainly when they were in opposition, I spent quite a lot of time with them. And as I say, I think it tells us quite a lot. The essence of the Cameron pitch hugely influenced by Steve Hilton, was a phrase he used on the day he was elected Conservative leader in December 2005. 
it was then that he said, there is such a thing as society. It's just that it's not the same as the state. And people saw in that phrase a leap from Margaret Thatcher, who once famously said, there is no such thing as society. When actually, when you reflect on it, if the media dares to reflect on things for more than a second, it was a precise reinforcement of the Thatcher message. Because Thatcher's wider message, when she talked about there being no such thing as society, was about the role that charities and voluntary sector agencies can play in delivery rather than the state. And that was precisely what Cameron was arguing. He was basically a small state conservative, just like Margaret Thatcher. And so, in his own way, was Steve Hilton. Those who knew Steve Hilton when he was close to Cameron and he worked with David Cameron in his office from the day David Cameron became Conservative Party leader and went into number 10 with David Cameron. Um, People said when Hilton then moved to the United States and became a pundit and presenter on Fox News and a devoted admirer of Trump, people here said, well, what the hell happened to Steve Hilton? This great modernizing Tory has become a fan of Trump on Fox News. And the answer is nothing happened to him. He was who he was when he was with David Cameron. But what happened was this. First of all, Steve Hilton was very affable, genuinely a beguiling character. I remember meeting him, first of all, at the Conservative Party conference in Blackpool, soon after David Cameron had been made leader of the Conservative Party. It was probably 2007, 2008, that kind of time. And I met him on the beach with Andy Coulson, who was Cameron's new, uh, newish press secretary. And I was joined by Ian Birrell, then the deputy editor of The Independent. Uh, I was a columnist at The Independent. And Ian Birrell was absolutely committed to uh, Steve Hilton at the time. He's one of those who's wondered what has happened to Steve Hilton. And we uh, sat on uh, some rocks on the beach, Steve Hilton in shorts and bare feet and a cool T-shirt, Andy Coulson somewhat more formally dressed, um, both of them smoking cigarettes and being very engaging, but in different ways, as I'll come on to explain. And Steve Hilton uh, was sincere in saying, look, oh, Steve, I'm really excited about, I found new ways in which we can deliver services in Britain. It's going to be really exciting. And then I was at the Bronx in the summer and saw this brilliant vegetable cooperative. We can learn from this and deliver services like this. Then you'd have another cigarette. And um, and it did sound quite sort of um, progressive and leftish uh, in some ways. And they said, oh, Steve, you know what you've got to do? It's really worth you phoning uh, Jesse Norman. And Jesse Norman then was not in Parliament. He said he's, he's going to set up a cooperative movement for Tories. Um, it shouldn't be a left thing, the cooperative movement. 
And, you know, we sat on this beach for ages and had a few laughs and things like that. But again, when you stood back and thought, well, okay, you know, he's not a fan of the state. Uh, His parents, Steve Hilton's parents, were uh, Hungarian and um, uh, rushed out of Hungary uh, with the kind of Soviet expansion and so on in the 50s. And that left him with this terrible fear of the state, I think. When you stood back, you started to pose the question, how, where, what? Where does the principles of no doubt a cool vegetable cooperative in the Bronx work, say, in the housing sector or the health sector? and so on, where large sums of money are provided by the government. I'm, I kind of left with that thought, but I I liked him. And I could see why Cameron, who was much less interested in ideas, found him beguiling. Cameron was a rather sort of orthodox person, um, but fascinated by how you win in politics. He had, like Boris Johnson, that Etonian fascination of the game and a hunger to win. And he could see the way Steve Hilton was framing arguments as a route to possibly winning, a route to wooing non-conservative columnists in the media, for example, because it did sound progressive. He went on to call it the big society. By the way, George Eustace, his first press secretary, uh, then uh, went on to be a Tory cabinet minister, uh, told me it was uh, Cameron's wife, Samantha, who came up with the sentence about there being such a thing as a society, it's not the same as the state. Although I think Steve Hilton was in the room when the phrase was formed because it was very much his vision too. Cameron surrounded himself by people interested in ideas. Oliver Letwin was another, whose mother was a sort of devotee of Thatcher and wrote books about Thatcherism and economic policy. And Oliver Letwin was such a devotee that when he was in the shadow cabinet, uh, he accidentally talked about the spending cuts a conservative government would implement in, I think, the 2001 election, to the extent that he had to go and hide uh, away because he was being too, too candid about his vision of a smaller state. So these are the kind of people Cameron liked hanging out with. But the early impact of this duo, Cameron, who used to dress like Tony Blair, you know, denim shirt at weekends, suits without a tie on, cycling from his house to uh, the House of Commons. And Steve Hilton, shorts, bare feet, T-shirt, conveyed a modernity that was actually quite deceptive. Because what they were doing really, in quite a clever way, was reinventing Thatcherism uh, for a new era. Thatcher wouldn't have employed someone with shorts and bare feet wandering around number 10. Cameron was okay about all of that. But the media bought into this relationship, an assumption that Cameron and Hilton were moving the Conservative Party away from the right to the centre ground and were modernisers, as Cameron claimed to be. They didn't 
delve deep as we do on this podcast. Uh, they weren't uh, moving the party away from the right. They were finding new ways of rooting it absolutely on the right. And this was confirmed to me when, uh, after the financial crash of 2008, David Cameron and George Osborne, his shadow chancellor, famously called for real-term spending cuts in response to the crash. Now, this was at odds with even the Republican George Bush uh, in the United States, the ultra-cautious, economically speaking, Merkel in Germany, that this was an appropriate response. They all agreed with Gordon Brown's leadership to a fiscal stimulus and an interest rate cut. But these two wanted real-term spending cuts. And when they announced this, partly to frame an argument around the fact that it was all to do with Labour's profligate spending, that the crash had happened, and therefore spending cuts were required, I bumped into Steve Hilton in the place where everyone gathers for coffee at Portcullis House in Westminster. And we had a coffee together. And I said, surely this uh, is a problem for you. Uh, as you envisage new and exciting ways of delivering better public services, you are envisaging spending cuts, incidentally, including to the charity sector, which Cameron, like Thatcher, saw as a new way of delivering services. And Steve Hilton said without hesitation, no, it helps us. It helps us. And the reason he said that was that he was not interested in the state spending more money. He had this vision of people running things for themselves. And for a time, this vision became known as the big society. And although uh, Cameron was at ease with it as a selling pitch, he was never fully gripped by it. Hilton was. He thought this was exciting. And then did something very interesting, which has been completely forgotten about, uh, but was hugely significant. He held, with Oliver Letwin, a series of closed meetings to explore how they were going to deliver this in power. And he called them the post-bureaucratic society. That was the theme of the meetings, because Steve was going to cut the state out, therefore reduce the number of bureaucrats. People would be freed from the state, from bureaucracy, to deliver by themselves, almost. And because they were sort of copying new labour in reverse, uh, non-Tory supporting columnists were invited to these gatherings. And I was invited to several of them. And, you know, Steve Hilton used to text and say, Steve, are you coming? It's going to be really interesting. And I've got absolutely no doubt, in his case, he was totally sincere and fascinated by it. As I say with Cameron, it was more a fascination about whether this leads, this provides a route to winning, because he faced quite a big mountain to overturn Labour's majority uh, in the looming general election. And on one level, these seminars were impressive because they weren't frightened by ideas and exploring ideas. When you understood they were ideas rooted on the right, they became quite interesting. 
And you, they had people from the charity sector um, exploring how they could expand and deliver services more effectively at a local level than agencies of a central state and so on. And you also, crucially, had this shadow cabinet members speaking about how they planned to address this. So, for example... Andrew Lansley, the Shadow Health Secretary, was at one of these meetings and uh, said that he would regard it as delivering, from his perspective, this post-bureaucratic society. When there was a major crisis in a hospital or health district, and he was not asked onto the Today program at 10 past 8 to take responsibility for what happened. You could see in that observation the seeds of his proposed NHS reforms, which began with a statement that the Secretary of State was no longer directly responsible for uh, the delivery of the uh, health provision, the NHS in effect. For David Cameron later, when Andrew Lansley produced that white paper to claim that he didn't know what Andrew Lansley was doing was not the case. Because one of those who attended these seminars was David Cameron. And that was very interesting because Steve Hilton was rushing around speaking to the various guest speakers, speaking to columnists like me. Um, uh, David Cameron uh, would sit there taking notes of the uh, various contributions. And he only kind of took part at the very end when he said that this idea, which he described as the redistribution of power, was the Conservatives' big idea. And what he meant was he was seeking to empower the user of public services by almost giving them responsibility for delivery. Steve Hilton nodded excitedly, uh, but that was the kind of the limit of David Cameron's contribution. Others were putting forward more detailed propositions. There was a really interesting one of these meetings to do with housing. I think it was Steve Hilton or maybe one of the other Tories involved who spoke about their idea of housing cooperatives, rather like this vegetable cooperative that Steve Hilton had seen uh, in the Bronx, whereby tenants would be responsible for the running of the estate and uh, the keeping up of the estate and the repairs and all the rest of it. It would be, uh, they would become, instead of, say, local authority owned or owned by housing associations, perhaps, they would become housing cooperatives, even if other agencies were indirectly involved. But then a problem arose. The money for the housing, the tenants wouldn't have the money, would come either from central government or local government, and if local government, partly via central government. So, who decides the level of money to go to the housing cooperative? Who decides whether the housing cooperative is spending taxpayers' money or council taxpayers' money in a responsible way? In answering those questions... Uh, the post-bureaucratic society seminar appointed theoretical bureaucrats all over the place to monitor, to hold to account, to keep track of the money, and so on. 
And this was one of the many practical problems arising from Steve Hilton's vision. And I remember writing this, you know, saying that I was impressed that they were exploring ideas, they were interested in ideas, they weren't scared of ideas, as labor in the modern era tends to be in opposition. But this was the issue, that their vision of a post-bureaucratic society involved the creation of thousands of bureaucrats to ensure levels of accountability and responsibility uh, when they, at the centre or at a local level, are providing the money. Oliver Letwin read this column and another of these seminars, I was invited to all these seminars, um, said, Steve, I've been thinking about your column and I've come up with the answer. We are just not bothered about that. Um, when you know the, the accountability issue doesn't concern us, we will create things like these housing cooperatives, uh, and it will be up to them how uh, the money is spent. And there will not be the need for these layers and levels of bureaucracy. Well, it's lucky Oliver said that to me when George Osborne wasn't in earshot because he was about to move into the Treasury, where his mission was to cut public spending in real terms and not just dole out money and have no idea how it's being spent. So they didn't really have an answer. And I wondered throughout this time how Steve Hilton would cope with the realities of number 10. He liked it in opposition. He cycled in, uh, had a cigarette before going into Cameron's office. Cameron adored him at this point and was just kind of, I, I think he just found him aesthetically pleasing to be with almost. And they were mates, you know, they were all part of this group that met at Conservative Central Office in that famous conservative research department that produces so many of these figures. The first sign of real sort of tangible tension, I think, was the launch of the Conservatives Manifesto in 2010, which was absolutely Steve Hilton's vision. And again, was on one level admirably bold. The theme was not what government could do for us, but what we could do almost for government or what we could do uh, to help ourselves. In other words, it developed this theme of local people getting together to deliver services, whether it's through neighborhood schemes or charities and so on. And that was the theme of the manifesto. And it was clear to me that Andy Coulson, I remember seeing him afterwards and uh, literally afterwards, still at the launch, it was a Battersea power station. Uh, Steve Hilton there, bare feet, shorts, you know, looking excited. And I, I saw Andy Coulson with again Ian Birrell, who was then briefly working with David Cameron. And I was kind of polite and said, oh, that was, that was a great event, uh, Andy. Uh, so, and he said, do you think so? And I could tell he didn't, that he knew uh, as a tabloid editor that at election time, people also wanted to hear what a party would do for them in government. Um, and this sort of severing of the link between the state and delivery um, was a massive risk. 
But anyway, on they went. And of course, they didn't win an overall majority with this theme. It was a very, it was a sort of coherent theme because they were proposing real-term spending cuts to give them the space to attack labor for profligate spending, as if the spending of the labor government triggered a global crash. Um, But such was their potency with the media at the time, this message resonated. But in order for it to resonate, they had to propose a smaller state, real-term spending cuts. Um, And they got around that with this vision of people delivering services for themselves, the sort of Hilton vision. But when they got into power, it was very interesting about how little of this took effect. Cameron, quite soon after becoming prime minister, dropped uh, the the term big society. Remember, this was meant to be their big idea, the redistribution of power through the big society. And uh, after a year or so, he never used it. And Steve Hilton uh, moved in and uh, was at the heart of things in number 10. Again, shorts, bare feet, T-shirt, looking cool but finding it very difficult, if not impossible, to translate these ideas which he had explored with great excitement in opposition into any practical form whatsoever. And of course, Cameron, who found uh, this was a limited route to victory, you would have thought a Tory leader could have won an overall majority after Gordon Brown suffered the financial crash of 2008, tired of Steve Hilton in terms of his use as a practical policy advisor. And what became increasingly important to Cameron was the uh, quad, the uh, four ministers who met regularly to sort things out. Uh, He, George Osborne, and from the Lib Dems, Nick Clegg, and uh, the guy who worked with Nick Clegg as chief secretary to the Treasury who formed a close relationship with George Osborne. Those four became, in a way, central to the development of policy. And Cameron, by the way, played the Lib Dems with great skill. Um, They ended up endorsing virtually everything Cameron and Osborne wanted to implement while failing to get their way on things like electoral reform, reform of the House of Lords. So the coalition became a government on the whole of the radical right, a economic policies that were more uh, Thatcherite than Thatcher. She never did real-term spending cuts in the way that they did, public service reform on a big scale. Um, and yet uh, often stumbled into the problems of consequences. So the Lansley reform uh, fell apart in government, having survived a seminar under the auspices of the post-bureaucratic society in opposition. And Steve Hilton famously left and went to the United States, uh, disillusioned, I think, with power and the constraints of power, uh, and I'm afraid facing reality rather than coming up with ideas uh, with Cameron nodding approvingly in opposition. And he went off to the United States and uh, he's married to Rachel Whetstone, who was also a prominent figure in the Tory party. And his friendship with Cameron had already lessened a bit. 
But as he found the space to become his full voice in the United States, uh, that meant two things. Uh, for sure, he became a supporter of Trump because Trump was a disruptor like Steve Hilton, um, a confused disruptor because he wanted tax cuts in a smaller state as Hilton wanted, but he wanted better public services and more infrastructure as Hilton also wanted. And it was no great surprise to me to see Steve Hilton defending uh, Donald Trump on Fox News. Uh, and Cameron could have put up with that. But what he could not put up with was Steve Hilton coming out forcefully in favour of Brexit. He felt betrayed. And this tells us much about Cameron. The fact that he felt betrayed and angry, especially with Michael Gove and Steve Hilton, because he thought in both cases they were his friends. And for Cameron, where politics is partly a game, he assumed friendship mattered more than beliefs and convictions. And therefore, even though he knew Gove had been a sort of Eurosceptic and, and really a Brexiteer for quite some time, he was felt a deep sense of betrayal when uh, Gove came out for uh, Brexit. And he did again with Steve Hilton who uh, returned to the United Kingdom to campaign for Brexit alongside uh, Gove and Johnson. That severed the relationship between Hilton and Cameron, and uh, it has never recovered from it. I, say, I think it shines quite a lot of light on the shallowness, really, of the Cameron project. The fact that all the ideas framed in opposition weren't really fully explored and tested, and then in government were fairly quickly dumped, actually, in terms of the provision of services. The idea of the spending cuts in the smaller state were explored. But also this idea that friendship trumps beliefs. I mean, Steve Hilton had beliefs. They were they were wacky and eccentric in some respects, but he they were clearly deeply held. And he was not going to dump any of them, including his Euroscepticism, because of a waning friendship with Cameron. And I thought it would be interesting to compare that relationship briefly with that of uh, Cameron's successor, uh, Theresa May, with one of her two chiefs of staff uh, coming in from the Home Office, and Nick Timothy. Uh, she also worked very closely with Fiona Hill. What I think that relationship shows, there was, in theory anyway, with May, a greater seriousness of purpose. She was much more, in a way, influenced by Nick Timothy and his ideas than Cameron was with Steve Hilton, because, say, Cameron had a kind of superficial interest in, you know, this post-bureaucratic society uh, seminars and so on, but only really as a, a, a route to victory and proclaiming change and modernization. These two, Theresa May and Nick Timothy, watched the Cameron project with great frustration. They recognized the game-playing element to it and I think had a more serious purpose. And that was uh, much more to do with Nick Timothy's ideas than Theresa May's ideas. Theresa May was not an ideas politician. But she had virtually total faith 
in uh, Nick Timothy uh, and indeed Fiona Hill, but it was Nick Timothy who framed the ideas that formed her opening pitch as a prime minister, which was around the idea of the good that government can do. Uh, something that was incorporated into her opening statement outside number 10, uh, which um, famously when she delivered it, people said, my God, it's as if Ed Miliband has won an election because some of the ideas were close to some of the ideas that Ed Miliband had espoused as Labour leader, that markets don't always work, that governments have a duty to intervene, that there is a virtue in an industrial society, uh, strategy. And it was combined with a kind of Enoch Powellite English nationalism. Nick Timothy was a strong supporter of Brexit. Theresa May was not. Of course, she was a Remainer. Um, but it was fascinating in a very different way to the Cameron uh, Hilton one in that she became a vehicle for her chosen special advisors' ideas. And they were uh, an interesting combination, economically, a leap to the left, even though, again, the media got it wrong. And because she was delivering or trying to deliver Brexit, uh, they saw it as a swing to the right. But economically, it was to the left. But I've never known a situation where the prime minister becomes almost the mouthpiece for her chosen confidant, her chosen special advisor. For sure, Tony Blair lifted lines from Alistair Campbell uh, and delivered them uh, regularly and listened to people uh, from Gordon Brown to Jonathan Powell and obviously Alistair Campbell and so on with all other prime ministers, Wilson, with Marcia Williams and Joe Haynes and others. Um, but this was very direct. They were Nick Timothy's ideas that she was going to put into practice. Um, and like virtually all these relationships, uh, this one ended calamitously uh, when uh, in 2017, Theresa May, and it was her decision to call that early election, lost uh, her overall majority and was told that if she wanted to carry on uh, as prime minister, she would have to sack her two chiefs of staff, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill. And I can't think of any more Shakespearean darkness, really, uh, than May having to do that. Uh, the reason being partly that the, these two had alienated quite a few cabinet ministers who could now destroy Theresa May if they wanted after her failure in that election campaign. Um, but... For her to have to do that was not only immediately painful, she was removing the person in the form of Nick Timothy driving the broad agenda of her government. And without him, that momentum went completely. It probably would have happened anyway because of the Brexit dramas that followed. Brexit sucked all life out of her government. Uh, but it would have been hard to inject life without the life force, which was her chosen special advisor. Um, other equivalent relationships have ended appallingly. Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Uh, others traumatically, really. Uh, to some extent, Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams with the controversy that still rages over his resignation honours list 
uh, being referred to again in the light of Boris Johnson's resignation honours list controversy. But nothing as brutal as that. And yet beforehand, it was marked by a seriousness of governing purpose that was never a characteristic of the curious relationship between David Cameron and Steve Hilton. So there we are. That was uh, plucked, as I say, from the vaults of uh, Patreon. And once again, thank you all of you who subscribe to it. And if you want to hear others from that series or general elections or the bonus for August, which is a live show from here, do subscribe. And um, that enables me to carry on working with the legendary podmasters who produce all the great uh, podcasts uh, that are available these days. So there we go. Here we are. Uh, I'm going to take a deep breath and get ready for the next uh, show in Edinburgh. As I say, it's been a joy seeing some of you in Edinburgh. See more of you here, I hope, in the coming days. And uh, in King's Place in London, first show I've done there for ages, contextualising and previewing the new political year, which always kicks off in September with the build-up to the party conferences. And say tickets for all of these on the blurb for the podcast. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, That will be it for these summer uh, specials from the vault of um, uh, Patreon. There will be a new Patreon bonus series beginning next month. And uh, we need to all get together again very, very soon. I hope you're having a great summer break. You need to, we all need to, because it's going to become epic in the autumn when we will feel as if we are moving towards that next general election with a government facing mountainous challenges and a Labour Party still not wholly sure of its um, pitch the precise nature of the pitch, facing an interesting challenge. Uh, Keir Starmer wrote a very good article in The the Scotsman, and I thought it was interesting because here uh, the SNP are attacking him from the left, and he has adapted accordingly. And it was a good piece, and I thought it was closer to his voice in some respects. Do you remember I kind of analysed one he wrote for The Observer recently, Uh, which plucked out many phrases from Tony Blair circa 2003, 2004, 2005. And we're now in 2023 um, with daunting challenges left, right and centre. Anyway, enough. Uh, Have a great time. Uh, See you very soon. Thanks so much. Bye.